Dueling Genre Productions presents... Oh my god, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my god, I'm flying, I can fly, I can teleport, and I can fly! Super senses! What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Welcome back to Spider-Man Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze and celebrate the movie Spider-Man 1, Peter's Got a Case of the Oopsie Dropsies Minute at a Time. I'm Zach Luna. <laughs> I'm Scott Corelli. Nice callback. Thank you. And I'm Hoi Chen Bui from Slash Film. Welcome, Welcome back. back. Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're having you back for Minute 30 today, which is the minute that begins with Spidey... Uh, <laughs> letting off some steam and uh, <laughs> asking what was that and it, and it ends with um our buddy hal spark saying cool spidey outfit mm-hmm. uh, so we are uh. we are knee deep in t- spidey having a tough day territory i guess the entertainment's I- own hal sparks <laughs> Ah, oh, classic. Um, well, I, is that is I, is is okay? Not to not to really just talk <laughs> okay. about House Sparks, but like we could talk House Sparks, sure. But why not? but <laughs> is this is this the most dated thing in this movie? Is I think so. Is House yeah. Sparks <laughs> just House yeah. Sparks existing in the movie? <laughs> I definitely think it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean they're not movies that tend to show their 
time period that often because they like we were talking about yesterday kind of exist in that slightly heightened reality but it's the crowd scenes when you can see people's outfits and when they have the mm-hmm. se- special celebrity guest stars. Right. That it Hal really Sparks is, like... is the Macy Gray of Spider-Man 2. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is the World what was it? World Unity Festival uh, equivalent uh, right. in Spider-Man 2. Yes. Oh, Hal. Um, what I, I think is worth pointing out is uh, we, we had like such a little mini discussion yesterday about um, the like heavy impact weight of spider-man landing on these you know weird conduit things or whatever and how grounded it felt and how it was like a really serious moment and then at the top of today's minute they have the perfect amount of time left before all this steam starts to come out it's like a looney tunes cartoon all of a sudden and i i kind of adore it it's perfect i love it it's it's the exact kind of thing where it's just it's just a little too much and that's mm-hmm. how you know it's a Sam Raimi movie. <laughs> it's, and then yes. you have Peter Parker going, what was that? In his yeah. dopey voice. <laughs> so like, ADR'd. Maybe they added that like line in ADR just to like reassure people that he wasn't seriously injured. Because it's like, it's such a bad moment. And then, oh, what was that? Like, oh, okay, Spidey feels fine about it. Yeah. Um, I think the suit looks great here. I think the costume itself is gorgeous in this like little standing up from being hurt bit that he's got there i agree you can really see like the detail in it um, yeah well and one of the one of the things that we've uh or i guess that i've been talking about with this uh the costume changes in this movie and one of the things mm-hmm. that has sort of bothered me about it, it as opposed to the to the first film is that um we talked about the way that they get the effect of the webbing on the on the costume, which is the uh, the silver we- webbing, and then um, it's painted silver on sort of like the top of the 3D webbing, and then on the sides they paint it black. And, and for some yeah. reason, it seemed as though I don't know in certain shots and certain lighting conditions it can look sort of blue. It, it almost mm-hmm. seems like they painted instead of black, they painted blue on the on sides, the like a dark blue yeah. or yeah. like um, a reflective black. I think. Yeah. yeah. Right. And see, and what I'm noticing with this in, in here is that there's a certain point of um, when we're switching to this sort of close up of of Peter, where there's mm-hmm. a reflection off the silver that makes it look sort of blue. And I'm yeah. almost wondering if the CG department wasn't overcompensating for that in the CG model and making right. the silver more blue than it needed to be. Right. Mm. Like the idea that, I mean, it's a silver colored you know, uh, foam latex application on top of the fabric, but mm-hmm. it's not highly reflective silver. It's almost like a gray uh, color. But I think when they modeled it in CG, they made it super reflective. And right. so it's actually picking up the blue of the environments and the blue of the rest of the suit and making it, you know, just a little bit, just a little bit weird there. Yeah. But, Looks like yeah, it's like bleeding, person. bleed like, uh, you know, like bleeding blue kind yeah. of um yeah yeah and right. it's and it's one just, of the things that bothers me about the costume in this in this particular film is uh sure. is, are those just those those times where like the blue shows up and it looks weird uh but looks it looks weird. it looks really great here the, it, yeah it, it, i mean this is this is a suit that was uh obviously built for night shots because exactly it just yeah. looks so good in the night shots um, much they, much what, better than the practical suit that the stuntman was wearing when he was scolding those two children earlier in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, I mean, they changed up the, um, uh, which I think I, I mentioned in that scene, that they changed up the actual way they did the fabric on the suits this time, where 
Um, they used to be doing a very labor-intensive uh, hand silkscreening process to get those little like brick details and muscle shading mm-hmm. uh, in on the fabric. And in this film, they have fabric that's um, like a deep, a deeper blue color to begin with, and a deeper red color to begin with. And they just have a one-step uh, dye sublimation printing process that puts the pattern on there. So it saves about six steps, and also the color nice. is deeper. Um, so yeah, so they could they could make more of them faster, and they sort of adjusted. With uh, early camera tests with Bill Pope, they adjusted about as close as they could get with um, the most saturated red um, as possible because he just didn't want it to look... In some scenes in the previous film, it looks a little orange depending on the way you light it, and he wanted it to always read as like real like rich, almost blood red in this film. And so I think this is the shot that like uh, like justifies that, all that mm-hmm. work that they did because it does look great. Um, Absolutely. And then we have, uh, you know, one of those classic uh, pull off the masks and look confused uh, yeah. scenes, which it doesn't make logical sense, but it it feels like cinematic. I don't know. Right. <laughs> it's, it's so funny because these scenes, they never really do, they're never very flattering towards Tobey Maguire and they <laughs> always become incredibly memed afterwards. Like uh-huh. <laughs> Tobey Maguire's confused face where his neck is all scrunched up and his face is kind of uh, weird looking. So it's like, it's, it works so well in the moment, but then I'm like, oh, man, that's going to become a meme afterwards. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. You can almost hear the keyboards, like, typing away after, like, oh, they're going to make fun of him for that. But it's, I like that, you know, lack of vanity in projects like this. Oh, it almost definitely. It's like, um, like, you know, like Lucille Ball in like, I Love Lucy, like, an amazingly gorgeous woman, but, like, was absolutely willing in any scenario to, like, scrunch up her face in weird ways and, you know, for... To, to make a joke land or to make a scene land better. Like she didn't have, uh, there's a thing some actors can do where they're like really, really concerned about making sure they look good all the time mm-hmm. on screen. And Toby's just game to be a little dweeby. And I, mm-hmm. I think it it's magical at times. I mean, I mean, you know, if you look at it this way, these three films are the only time I think ever Toby Maguire was an action star ever. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think the fact that he isn't aware of himself when he's doing things like straining and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, the train scene is is the big one. That's it's, the big yeah, one. Right. Famous. Yeah. It's it's a famous <laughs> meme. And, uh, you know, I I respect the fact that he looks like a normal person trying to stop a train. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Definitely. For me, it's the part that really sells him as Peter Parker because, mm-hmm. you know, Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland are so, they're so attractive and they're so young and vi- fresh faced and they never really look bad. But here, mm-hmm. you know, Tobey Maguire is looking a little bit dorky, looking a little bit dweeby. And that's the part that really sells him as Peter Parker more than Spider-Man for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's also the reason I don't really buy into the the common complaint people have about like, why is he always taking off his mask? And it's, well, you want to see your actor act. And we don't get, you know. I'm sure there's we, some sort of SAG um, like requirement. Probably. Actors must have their face 70% of the time or something. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. But like it, it really helps for, for moments like this in um, connecting the two characters together. Because a lot of times, and that's one of the reasons that uh, stuntmen love the Spider-Man movie so much, is that you can just swap in a stuntman if it's a tricky, you know, mm-hmm. shot or if you want to sell a, like we'll have a, a trick shot in like a couple seconds here using two stuntmen at once, but um, because the mask covers the whole face. But in connecting to the character, 
we like to see people's eyes and we like to see, you know, how things land on them. So even if it's a scene that is about having trouble Spider-Manning, it's nice to have your like frustrated human face there. We, mm-hmm. we connect to and empathize with him there. So, and you know. we're in 2004 when they didn't know how to animate the mask <laughs> yeah, and make no, that was... work. <laughs> so uh, the only way to get facial expressions was to do this. Uh, just take the mask off. Um, you see yeah. back in the day, kids, uh, <laughs> we didn't have uh, Spider-Man masks that animated themselves. <laughs> oh, it was a different time. It a was. Different, you know, but so, okay, so way. this shot where he is standing on the edge of the roof and mm-hmm. uh, shooting out his hand, trying mm-hmm. to web shoot, is this a like a, re- a recreation of the Go Web Go framing? That's what I thought, actually. Mm, it, yeah. Call, it yeah. appears. Appeared to me as a parallel of that, except as a more darker version, not only because it's at night, but because, you know, his powers aren't working at all. And mm-hmm. then he has that sort of vertigo effect where uh, he looks down and everything becomes blurry for a second and he becomes frightened for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, I guess, the bookend to the idea of, like, the discovery, the, like, um, Go Web Go is, like, the elation of discovery of your newfound powers and whatnot mm-hmm. and this is the the tragedy of loss i guess i don't know like yeah i think it makes sense to shoot them in a similar way um and even if i'm maybe not consciously recalling that scene while i watch it it feels appropriate i don't know yeah yeah, I like yeah no mm-hmm. i think so um and it's it's just really well shot by uh, oh, yeah. by bill pope i i am just I'm like looking at this paused frame and I'm just like, my God, those gloves look so good. Why do those gloves look that good? (laughs) (laughs) I want to know who like the second AC on this movie was because the the rack focus that they do where you see his eyes, then then he puts the hand out real fast and they go right to the hand and then focus goes right back to his eyes. It's like two super precise rack focuses in one shot, just like casually done. Before his eyes get all big, it's just oh yeah, I don't know. It's a movie. It feels like a movie. It's really it's so movie. big, right? It's yeah. just yeah. so big. Everything is just so felt, deeply yeah. felt. Yeah, and it's um, and it's one of those. It's one of those things. I don't know. Like it feels like it's it's part of what I miss from the superhero movies. I mean, granted, like we we get a lot of cool stuff in superhero movies stuff that i never thought i would see on film like a talking raccoon just for example (laughs) um but you know we get so we get a lot of that stuff but one of the things that i think we've lost in this this new world order of comic book movies um is uh, filmmakers being able to put a very like stylistic stamp on on the film because mm. they tend to like go after people who are you know just like really good workman directors for the most yeah. part um mm-hmm. it, it just, just in general i mean there there are obviously exceptions but even mm. somebody who is an exception like you know say james gunn even in those films those filmmakers you can tell are sort of tapping their internal brakes a little uh, mm. To fit in a little bit more, and then when you have filmmakers like Edgar Wright who just couldn't tap their brakes because if they tap their brakes, they're not Edgar Wright anymore. I do miss the the adaptation process, the old school adaptation process of these superhero films, where it is very much a, a filmmaker's singular take on a superhero. Um, yeah. yeah, and we don't really get that anymore. Yeah, for a lot of modern day films uh, of the superhero genre, I feel like there's this house style um, that directly appeals to 
children because it's incredibly hmm. frenetic. It's very frantic. Uh, lots of cuts and everything moves very quickly. And mm-hmm. you also have a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor as well. Uh, whereas mm. in Spider-Man, in Spider-Man 2, everything is just much more slow and much more um, grand and and with those gestures. And I feel like that yeah. appeals to a, almost a wider audience in terms of like adults because it appeals to like women and men as well as people who are younger but it feels like more mature in a way it doesn't try to catch your attention with everything that's happening on screen mm-hmm. yeah. And, yeah and I feel like it's a little more romantic oh in, definitely you know in just that sort of old school way of, of <laughs> romance um, it just it it feels more. I mean, you know, we talk about it all the time, but it just feels more like movie magic to me. Uh, yeah. It, when you're looking at something like this, but then on the flip side of that, you know, you give uh, too much creative control to someone like a Zack Snyder, and you get uh, what you get over there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So you know, it can backfire. It can certainly backfire. Uh, totally. But yeah. but I do I do miss this a little bit. It's this idea that like. Um, I mean, and at least we still have it in this film that the main goal here is just to make this film. You know, like when we're making Spider-Man 2, our goal here is to make Spider-Man 2. Our goal is not necessarily to make Spider-Man 2 and connect it to the, you know, I don't know, movies that don't exist. There's no other movies in this universe. There's no other superheroes in this world. There's no like larger, uh, 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 you know, nationwide television series that we're trying to to tap into it's just we're making this one movie so like stylistically it's about what in this moment makes us feel the way this part of this movie wants me to feel and we can go it's a bit more mannered it's a bit more stylish in that way because the only goal is you know make this movie the most movie it can be and the sam raimi likes to make a movie that feels like a movie not like a you know the next chapter in the ongoing saga of the forever tv series uh right that's like a perfect <laughs> the forever way to phrase it. tv series the forever tv series that we you know we we go pay uh, however much money to go see the the new installment in every couple of months which i love i love that forever tv series but it's not the same goal here and mm-hmm. i think it's it's in moments like this or moments like the upside down kiss or you know uh mm-hmm. all of these singular idiosyncratic things that are just this like movie style this world has its own tone right and we get to luxuriate in it for a while right right it feels just like just like a movie like you said is not an episode <laughs> in something right yeah i i do have uh i do have a question because um mm. uh, for, for ht because i i uh, okay so last season we talked about the upside down kiss and mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we, you know, you're one of our main, um, one of our first, like, sort of like, you know, person in the, working in like, you know, movie journalism and all of that. Oh, thank you. Um, So, so we, we, I'm I'm just wondering, we really were hard pressed to think of an icon, an iconic kiss on the level of the upside down kiss that has happened since then. Can you think of any? Yeah. 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 Mm, That's a good question. Something that really like just really drove itself into like popular culture. And it just, I can't think of one. I'm just wondering yeah. like, was, was the that the last one? Did the notebook come notebook? after Spider-Man? Ooh, when was two? that? Or Spider-Man? Yeah, I, the, think the, it, I think the notebook. Again, okay, a rain, rain. Another case, rain yeah. thing. <laughs> the rain adds that heightened drama. That's why. Yeah. 
It adds heightened drama, and not for nothing, but, you know, there's some metaphors involved there about, you know. Oh, oh, of course. <laughs> yes. Everybody being, yeah. uh, you know, covered in water. Yeah. Because yeah. like, that was 2004. I think you're right. That's a, I guess there hasn't been. It's it's very rare to see something of that impact, I guess, and that's really seeped down in pop culture um, of mm-hmm. the romance level. I think also because there's been a real lack of romantic movies in the past mm. couple decades, too. And I don't yeah. think Spider-Man will count as a romantic movie, but it has so many romantic moments. And it's filmed very romantically, like you said. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because it's there's just like this dearth of of uh, iconic kisses and romantic moments like that just because I think that that genre is slow, slowly fading and we're, we're only finding those moments in movies like Spider-Man or in other comic book movies or genre movies. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Well, it used to be, you know, like sublimated into the idea of just, oh, a big movie, you know, it'll have a, a bit of everything and something like that. But this idea that the thing that, that struck me like recently with, um, uh, you know, Black Panther, among the hundreds of things that struck me with about Black Panther was the idea of there being a like legitimate romantic subplot in that film that ends with a kiss. And I like thought back on the idea that the the big like studio like blockbuster films have been sort of uh, largely bereft of romance like especially with the marvel universe like i don't think canonically anybody has been like romantically involved in a serious way in the marvel universe since like like iron man you know like pepper pot stuff like it it, it's all oh these people almost got in a relationship but they couldn't because of x i think it's it's also notable that iron man was the last movie that was sort of made for adults, I hate to say mm. that. It was made okay. without in mind of, you know, the the larger Marvel universe. It was kind of a yeah. happy accident that it became the launching pad for the Marvel mm-hmm. Cinematic Universe. But that mm. movie was almost a movie unto its own, sort of like Spider-Man 2, like we're talking about now. Yeah. Um, and that had a great rep- rapport between Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert Downey Jr. And they had like a whole His Girl Friday type of thing going on. But yeah, yeah. after that, after they all the movies sort of became folded into this larger universe. They almost didn't have time for romance. And when they did, it's not good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or like maybe one moment of romance amidst, you know, a couple things, but that it's like a fully integrated, like secondary track that's, 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 that's in this film. Or as we were talking, because now my brain is on Ryan Gosling, I would, the only other big kiss I can think of, was you know in drive they have that like uh, oh. elevator kiss that's a good like, one I yeah. that was that a pretty a good, good one. one but it but you know i mean that movie wasn't big huge impact i mean i know a lot of like film geeks know it but i don't think like my mom ever saw drive you know right i don't think that made like the impact on popular culture that like a top gun makes or you know a even like batman returns is like a super romantic movie that's a good but, one yeah 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 but we just it's some, something about it just isn't there anymore and i miss it I yeah really i really want a big sweeping romantic superman or it's not super well superman's yes. fine that would be yes. fine superman. yes yeah, big please. superman movie <laughs> but like, yeah a superhero movie just in general big sweeping romantic superhero movie would be so great but i would yeah no i would love a, a screwball rom-com superman movie that would be uh, Ooh, beautiful that would be so fun Lois i know Clark. oh yeah that's what we need i know well, we have so before we get to I guess Hal, uh, the Hal of it all. Um, I think the only other elephant in the room is like this actual story decision um, and and what we feel about it. The idea of Spider Man not being able to Spider Man, 
because of his emotional state. I mean, this is a thing introduced in this film that's going to be, you know, a big chunk of time devoted to. Uh, I I understand it from a character standpoint, but I've known a lot of people get weirded out by it. So just want to know what you guys thought about this, like, plot development in general. Like, does it work for you, the Spidey not spideying or not being able to i think it really works for me because Mm. it's a sort of um very grand big way of showcasing how he this inner emotional inner turmoil that peter parker is going through is Mm. sort of manifesting in this physical way and i think that's really in line with how this movie is made and how everything is so melodramatic and everything is so big so for me that works um i think it yeah, I think it, I don't think it could have been done any other way just because if it had been done on a more internal scale, it would have felt more uh, like a weepy, very just hard to connect with. But here, you know, you can see that things are not working for him. You can physic- you can see how he's physically struggling. And that mm-hmm. is a really good translation, I think, of his inner struggle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and and I think the thing that I really like about it is that it can only be done in these movies because he has organic web shooters. Like <laughs> if if they did the mechanical web shooters, it wouldn't work as well. It's not as dramatic for him to not be able to crawl up a wall or have trouble yeah. lifting something. It would you probably know? be very comedic, honestly, <laughs> if he was just right. like on a wall and then fell off. Right, exactly. <laughs> like it's just so much more... I don't know, just powerful and and big and dramatic that he can't shoot his webs. And that's something that could only happen in these movies. And so yeah. I really like it for that. And then the other part of it is that, you know, they use the the biological web shooters and the uh his powers manifesting and everything as sort of a, you know, we 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 talked about how in the beginning while they were, you know, really starting to look into how they were going to adapt Spider-Man for the screen with the first film, mm. one of the things that they kept coming back to was using uh the the powers manifesting as a sort of metaphor for puberty. And uh, and they ended up really kind of stepping back from that, especially from the James Cameron draft, (laughs) which was went way too hard onto that. You could read into the web shooters being a sort of Mm -hmm. analogy for puberty. Uh huh. (laughs) Uh, And and James Cameron just put that on Front Street. He has a (laughs) he has a he has a web dream. uh, Oh my! In James Cameron's draft, yeah, you know, wakes up and the whole room is covered in webbing. Yeah, dream. It's like Um, it's not subtle. After 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 having a sexy MJ dream. Uh, Yeah. Uh Yeah. Uh, But but. So, you know, I, while the, the puberty of it all is a little David Lynchy for me, for my taste, um, for, yeah. for Spider-Man, <laughs> uh, what I do like about him not being able to use his powers is it's sort of like a, like a middle-aged metaphor, you know, oh. <laughs> of like, you know, he's having sort of a mid, a midlife crisis in a way, uh, mm. that's sort of what this movie's about. I mean, he's not at midlife, but that's. That's what's going on where he's just like, yeah. am I really wanting to do what I'm doing forever or do I want to change and be, uh, you know, this happy version of what I what my I- ideal life was going to be um, before yeah. I got bogged down in a nine to five spider Manning job, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's sort of what's happening is he's having this sort of midlife crisis and um, 
having uh, biological impairments as a result sure. of, sure, of that yeah. psychological yeah. issue. Like, and I, I really like that. I don't know. I like it way more than, than the puberty metaphor, personally. Sure. <laughs> yeah, the identity crisis is a sort of common thing with heroes wherein they either lose their powers or they give up their duties for a little bit. But um, I think that this really works, especially for Peter Parker, because it sort of emphasized that he feels like he didn't have a choice in the matter in becoming Spider-Man because later on, yeah. well, I'm, guess, I, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but he's very, <laughs> he's very fueled by the guilt that he felt for Uncle Ben's death. And I feel like that yeah. was a huge factor in motivating him to take on the mantle of Spider-Man um, mm-hmm. rather than just doing it out of, you know, the will to save people. And here that's where he's he's struggling with that. Like, does he actually want to do this because this is what this was his choice. This is what he really wants to do, right. or is he doing it partially out of guilt for something? Yeah. Right. It's like starting down the path is almost a, a an easier decision than committing to it long term. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the the circumstances are so clearly set early on about, you know, oh, this because of me this happened i can't let this happen again and there's a supervillain i gotta take it down the the bigger question is like devoting your life to you know a a creative pursuit or a calling or heroics whatever your your thing may be that's the the decision you have to keep making and i think that's more what this this movie focuses on i think it's a good way to do it i think when people do get hung up on the never explained and never returned to um device of his powers not working when he's not really feeling it i think it's from a internal logic place whereas i i think with a movie like this and with a lot of films that are in this vein of you know classic heroism sublimated through uh you know monomyths and into american mythology which is superheroes i think they work better as metaphors for your personal responsibility than they do as like airtight narratives about like logic puzzles like they don't Mm -hmm. really make a lot of sense Mm -hmm. from a vigilante like actual standpoint i mean the classic idea is the batman thing where yeah if batman really wanted to help crack down on crime in gotham you know uh he should probably be you know using his vast wealth to improve social services and things like that he probably shouldn't be beating up criminals in a bat suit right <laughs> but but because but but the idea of batman works as a metaphor for personal responsibility and you know devoting yourself to a cause so like we will will forgive the logical misstep in the reality if it serves the the larger like um uh the, the larger metaphor mm-hmm. and guys, i think this is the same thing have you guys yeah. seen uh hayao miyazaki's movie kiki's delivery service Yes. No. Absolutely, no. I have. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, there's a a subplot or a sort of a twist in the film that happens that's very similar to what happens with Peter Parker's identity crisis here, mm. in which Kiki uh, is she's a witch, so she has powers and she can fly on her broomstick. Oh. But then um, halfway through, <laughs> she starts to have a crisis of identity where she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life, and it all sort of comes around her. Um, coming of age and having all of these decisions about what she's meant to be as a person yeah. and she yeah. loses her powers and it is again it's another metaphor for um, being at a loss for who you are as a person and not being able to rely on or fall back on these powers or these um, I, these sort of image um, images that you've always sort of 
identified with. So mm-hmm. it's it's something that's um yeah, I don't I want I don't want to say that's like a big logical fallacy cuz it's not really part of like the whole superhero myth. It's not airtight. I think it's more of like a a metaphorical um identity thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels emotionally right and that's why it works. And um, and the other part of it that I think is important and and is sort of an important part of the uh adaptation process when you're when you're taking these characters from a comic book to a movie screen is that it's one thing to have Spider-Man at the beginning of every issue say you know, well, I wish Uncle Ben was here, but I let him die, and that's why I'm Spider-Man. Um, and it, it's one thing to have every issue of Spider-Man say, do something like that, make some sort of reference to that event. But when we're watching a movie and we're watching real people play these characters, you start to get into a place of, you know, we as an audience, um, there's a... Uh, we need a sort of an emotional anchor that's deeper than that. And mm-hmm. we will start to question things like, are, how are they really not over this yet? You know, um, <laughs> one, one of the things that uh, I always think about, and it's one of the things that people criticize his performance uh, about is um, when George Clooney took over as Batman. One of the things he said was just like, yeah, I, I, I'm playing him a little happier because, I mean, his his parents died like 30 years ago. What's he still hung up about it? About? <laughs> and I just remember him being quoted about that. And people were like, oh, no, he's that that's why it was a failure. And it's like, guys. George Clooney's performance was the least of that movie's problems. <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 you know, at a certain level, he sort of has a point, you know, 30 years yeah. later. You you you're you're when your parents die at eight years old, thirty years later, you're gonna kind of be over it a little bit, at yeah. least to a certain extent. And so, yeah. what this movie is doing is like, you know, the whole first movie was about Peter not really accepting Uncle Ben's death, um, right. and turning to Spider Man as a way to cope with that loss that mm-hmm. he blames himself for. Yeah. Um, this movie, I think, is largely about like I, I kind of just want to accept that he's gone so that I can move on with my life because I don't want to do this anymore. And yeah. why can't that be okay? And yeah. th- so this is a movie to a certain extent about, you know, our questions as an audience of like, why is he still doing this? Like, just go be with the girl you want to be with, like, <laughs> you know, and, and this is a movie about like why he can't do that and why it's important yeah. that he, he keep doing the Spider-Man thing. And finding a balance between that and his life. And it's sort of a metaphor for that that uh, acceptance of like, okay, I can honor my uncle, but also move on with my life. I can do both of those right. things. Yeah. Right. I think yeah. for a lot of comic book fans, they generally tend to accept this is the origin this, and they don't take it as like a large – it's a large part of the – the superhero's identity, but it doesn't come up with every issue. It's more of just like a kicking off point for what adventure, mm-hmm. what issue, what story of the day will they uh, embark on. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that really needs to have a huge emotional value as opposed to in a feature film. You have to have some sort of emotional arc or character yeah. arc. And I think that's where um, the movie like Spider-Man 2 differs from something that's just like a a comic, like just something you pick up from the newspaper or the comic book or something. Right. 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 Absolutely. Um, 
So uh, then we go we go inside and uh, <laughs> we meet our friend Hal Sparks. So for for people who weren't around. Um, and watching E! Entertainment News uh, <laughs> in 2004. Uh, why don't you tell the people at home, our, our younger listeners, who who the hell is Hal Sparks and why is he right. in this movie? Okay, so uh, Hal Harry McGee Sparks III uh, from <laughs> Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, was raised in Kentucky and moved to Chicago uh, for high school. He was a uh, sort of ubiquitous entertainment presence in the early 2000s. Um, he's just one of those people who was one of those uh, stand-up comic slash actor slash writer directors who was just around in everything. So um, a lot of people know him from uh, the show uh, Queer as Folk that he he was Michael on, and he was the host of Talk Soup from like 1999 to 2000, which, oh boy, we don't have the soup anymore. Um, mm-hmm. was a, <laughs> It was a TV show that like you make fun of the pop culture of the previous week, basically, and it was later taken over by Joel McHale, who our younger listeners might know from uh, Community and his new show on Netflix. But, like, before there was a Joel McHale, there was a Hal Sparks. And before Hal Sparks, wasn't it Greg Kinnear? Isn't that right? It was Greg Kinnear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Greg Kinnear was, yeah. And so um, he would, for, there was, like, a three-year period there where Hal Sparks was in everything. You know, he's the cult leader in uh, Dude, Where's My Car? You know, he was... There was this <laughs> there was this show on E or VH1 or E. I can't remember which one it is. This, which I guess kickstarted our whole nostalgia thing, called it, "I Love the '80s" was the first one, and it was an entire TV show that was just you sit down with a camera in front of like entertainment people and ask them about stuff that happened in the '80s, and they would make jokes about it, and we would cut together footage, and that was just a show that we watched. And they did one "I Love the '80s," "I Love the '90s," "I Love the New Millennium." I love the seventies. For, I love the for our South back. Park fans, it was uh, Member Berries, the show. Um, <laughs> yes, Member Berries, the show. And and Hal Sparks, man, he was he was like the guy on that. He was in every season of the I Love the Blank shows. And um, if you needed a guy who just kind of always sort of looks like an up close magic magician, <laughs> you just need like a wacky, sarcastic dude. Hal Sparks, he was there. Somebody where like, oh, they're gonna show up at the red carpet with like an earring and a goatee and like a Green Lantern shirt to like show that we're hip to the youth. Hal Sparks <laughs> was your guy, and so oh, man. he was a huge deal at this point, and so he has this little cameo in the film. But it doesn't make sense. Oh <laughs> man, it was of... so distracting in the theater. <laughs> I was like, why is the talk soup guy on here? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. With his beagle, the you know, there's the dog. Uh, and, the, uh, yeah, that just that old hound dog he's got is just just yeah. the saddest hound dog. Oh, it's not even a beagle. Yeah, it's like a basset or something. Yeah, like a yeah, yeah it's just an old ba- basset never... basset hound. An old an old saggy basset hound is my uh, patronus, according to. Uh... Oh, <laughs> that's very specific. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I think mine was a falcon. Did you ever do those like online patronus test quizzes? I did. I think mine was an. A rabbit? I can't rabbit? remember. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> See, you guys both got cool ones. I got a sad basset hound. <laughs> <laughs> That's so much more charming, though. You know, like people are going to remember that. Like, I guess I my to... Patronus just like falls over its own ears. Um, <laughs> he has a bark that right. scares away dementors. It's charming. It's, <laughs> it's charming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, this um. This elevator scene, uh, I'm sure we'll we'll talk more about it on Monday. But uh, I I loved this elevator scene so much 
uh, that, uh, I mean, it, it got one of the biggest laughs in the whole movie, this elevator scene. Oh, of scene. course. Yeah. Because um, it's just so <laughs> weird and awkward and just, you know, this is sort of, it's it's a little bit like uh, the rooftop scene with the Green Goblin from the first movie in that it's like, it's yeah. really silly. It's really pointing out how silly this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and but embracing it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so I just, I, I, I loved this so much that uh, as an undergrad, I did a, a short film and I just completely ripped off this elevator scene in my short film um, because I just I just loved it and so I just I put my two actors in an elevator and I and I I gave them like a few lines and just told them to improv everything else and then Mm. I just left the camera on and I just said keep the scene going until I call cut and so I just ran it and made them flail until oh they were complaining God. about how long the elevator ride was. And then I <laughs> called that. Um, but I, uh, I, yeah, just totally ripped this off completely. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the way it's deployed in the film is uh, the way it's deployed in the theatrical cut of the film. Yes. Just <laughs> enough, just the right amount uh, yes. where it really I think, sears into your memory. I think it's yeah. just the right amount. And then a little too much that, that it just, it's like, it becomes another level of funny. It's kind of like mm-hmm. it goes mm-hmm. on and you're like, okay, this is like where you would usually cut. And then it goes on a little too long. You're like, okay, this is a little too much. And then it goes on a little longer and you're, you're like, this is the greatest joke ever. Yeah. 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 Like, we land somewhere way more intimate than we assumed we would because at, at first blush, you think it's just the visual gag. And yeah, it is. The visual gag is funny. Spider-Man standing next to a dude in an elevator. Look how ridiculous this costume looks next to quote unquote regular person clothes kind of looks like a like a nebbish david boreanaz right now um <laughs> he but, has the same hair too wow hair. Um, um, nebbish but, with a with a pirate earring uh yeah yeah like like you do when your house barks in right 2000 whatever um but that it continues from just the visual gag to like there's something i think charming about like two strangers like connecting like actually like sharing a, a human moment even though they don't know each other i always find that kind of like oh beautiful the way that like when you see a puppy on the street and you're just like oh puppy i i like it in movies or real life i guess when like two strangers share an experience maybe it's just like somebody's being like rude on the subway and you look over at the person next to you and they give you that look of like you see this person too yeah like that <laughs> little thing there there's something yeah there's something beautiful about it. And I think this is the equivalent on screen. And so it's, I just always liked it. I mean, it's also, it's also that moment of, you know, running into someone famous and trying to keep oh, it cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's a little bit of that too. Uh, like this, it definitely um, reminds me of, uh, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I bagged groceries for Tommy Lee Jones and. Oh no. Wow. And it was, oh, that's yeah. awesome. And it was just the weirdest. He called me slick. It was the weirdest. <laughs> It was the weirdest thing, and I just tried so badly to keep my cool. Um, yeah. And, and so it reminds me of that a little bit. Uh, or running into famous people at, like, a convention, and you mm-hmm. just – you end up in the elevator with them, and you're like, oh, my God. Like, and I'm you start sweating. You're like, I yeah. want to yeah. be, like, a really dorky person. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. But I, I would – I'll regret not saying anything, and then you end up just kind of, like, blurting something out, like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Like, oh, no, I'm a monster. (laughs) What have I done? Um, Something about it is relatable to that to that level that this is a thing that like when if people are reaching for a thing to say to Spider-Man, 
this is a thing they go to a lot. Like (laughs) I've mentioned in other episodes of the show, like when I go out and do events as Spider-Man, like children's hospitals visit, children's hospital visits or, um, you know, cancer walks and stuff like that. People will want to come up and talk to you when you're Spider-Man. And there's like a few key things that people always say. One they always say is do a flip because they like, I don't know, want to demand something of you. Another one they yell is, hey, where's Mary Jane? And the other thing they do is they say, a cool spidey outfit where'd you get it like they like this is a, a go-to like phrase that they have about it uh and i think that's really i don't know it's like it's it existed beyond the awkwardness of the macy gray of spider-man 2 mm-hmm. it, yeah it's now know, you know and from the flip side of it this is also that awkward moment where you are cosplaying or something and you're in a place where you're outside of the convention center and someone sees you in the costume and you're kind yes. of embarrassed. Yes. Like, like, oh, I this is totally normal at the place that I'm going to. But right now, <laughs> this is super weird and you're judging me and I know you are. And I have, yeah. I'm feeling a lot of shame and embarrassment <laughs> right now. <laughs> And that that is relatable content. Right yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's the most real like moment of Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, H.E., do you remember seeing this um, these movies for the first time and what you thought of them? Oh, um, it, was, it felt like a long time ago to me, but I I loved them when I saw them for the first time. I think I saw both in theaters, and uh-huh. I was just I was about how old was I? 14 years ago i was about 12 13 yeah nice. so um right in the wheelhouse yeah I, I, I was having a great time um yeah i was just blown away um i completely that was when i was first starting my sort of obsession with superheroes so it was a really great sort of entry point for me because the hero is so relatable the um action is so big the drama is so fun and the romance is so sweeping so i completely loved it in theaters i think yeah spider-man 2 had a huge impact on me um because it's just it's such a good film and definitely still one of the best superhero films of all time so i yeah i my experience was just overwhelming exuberance and joy i think watching in theaters (laughs) awesome beautiful um all right well thanks for joining us these past couple of days yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't you tell people about uh, about your podcast? Yeah, so I have a weekly podcast. Uh, it's called The Millennial Falcon. It's a pop culture podcast for for and by millennials and everyone else too. <laughs> Where awesome. can we find that? Oh, We're online. It's yeah. on SoundCloud and it's also on iTunes and Google Play. Google Play. Beautiful. All right. Fantastic. Well, um, all right. Well, go check out, uh, check that out. And uh, if you guys want to, um, if you want more of Zach and I, uh, you can, uh, <laughs> you can go check out our Patreon page, duelinggenre.com slash support, and you can get uh, The Weekend Bugle, the podcast where Zach and I talk about geek culture, entertainment news, and all things Spider-Man um, on the weekend. So if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in, uh, you should check that out and uh, support us over there. That's duelinggenre.com slash support. And we will be back on Monday with Minute 31. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.